The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, this is Alexis Haynes, and welcome to Recovering from Reality, where I illuminate the messy and magical path of coming home to yourself. Whether you're on the road to recovery, seeking self-care techniques for surviving the capitalist machine, or just need a moment to remember that you're not alone in your loneliness, we're serving up the ultimate truth. Your challenges don't define you. How you deal with them does. So, are you ready to recover from reality? All of us have a soul, and the soul is our most authentic, our most beautiful, our most loving, our most kind and generous part. It's the part that we come into the world with, but that over the years of our life and with all the experiences that we have and all of the fears that we collect and and the trauma that we go through, that the soul gets covered up by our ego and by our humanity. And so trying to find a way back to an understanding that at our essence, we're divine and we have this beautiful part of us is what I try to teach the people that I work with now, that that at the center and at your core, you are beautiful and you are loving, even though oftentimes when we're using, of course, we are, are so far away from that that we forget. That was a quick clip from this week's episode with Dr. Carter Stout. And before we begin, I need to take a minute with you guys to talk about racism. And I don't really care if you're sick of hearing about it at this point. I don't care because we need to be screaming about this from the rooftops until massive change occurs. And it's not up to people of color to make this change happen. We don't leave the oppressed to create their own freedom and their path to freedom. We as white people have to do the fucking heavy lifting. The time is now. The time was actually at the inception of this country, which has continued to pretend that it is some sort of savior when It doesn't even follow its own rules. We have, we're we're a country of law and order, and I'm saying that in quotes, where we have these ideals that terrorism is bad and murder is, you know, punishable by a lifetime in prison, and yet we're killing black people on a regular basis at more than two times the rate of white people in this country. We went and positioned ourselves as heroes against the Nazis, winning the war. Meanwhile, still here in America, we were lynching black people in the street and segregation was still real. We go to war over oil 20 years long in the Middle East, killing innocent civilians for our own greed. We destabilized parts of South and Central America for our own benefit. We're fucking hypocrites. This has to end now. 
the for-profit prison industry, which predominantly affects people of color, has to end now. Climate change, which predominantly affects people of color, we have to do something about that now. Poverty. All of these things have to change because the truth is, if you are on the spiritual path and you want to see the world peaceful and free, it won't be until we really, really get to a place of equity. And that's equity, not equality. And if you don't know the difference, please go and do a quick Google search and get informed about that. Many of my followers have asked me, what can I do? And, you know, thank you for even being open to being willing to do anything. Not that you should get a prize for that, but I'm really hoping that people are starting to wake the fuck up to what is going on in this country and in this world. First and foremost, you can donate to the George Floyd Memorial Fund. He has a beautiful daughter that he left behind. You can donate to Reclaim the Block, to the Black Visions Collective, to Campaign Zero or the NAACP. Then I'm asking you all to please call DA Mike Freeman in Minnesota and demand the arrest of all of the officers involved. So far, only the man that had his knee on George Floyd's neck as he suffocated to death has been arrested and his charges weren't even for first degree murder as they should be. All of the other officers that stood by complacent walk free today. Please call 612-348-5550. That's 612-348-5550 and demand that they are all arrested now. The next step would be to text Floyd, F-L-O-Y-D, to 55156. That's 55156. The next action step is to register to vote now. We must be registered to vote. We can no longer be complacent. Get informed, register, and make sure that your voice is heard. You can begin to educate yourself. Please do not go to people of color and ask them for advice. I'm going to give you some steps to begin the process of educating yourself. You can go back to podcast episode number 71 with Laurice McMillian, who talks about creating safe spaces for black women in the workplace of this on my podcast to number 62, Ashley Marie Preston, a dear, dear, lovely friend of mine, a black trans woman who shares her story and her activism on the podcast. That's episode number 62 with Ashley Marie. And then you can go back to episode number 27, Triana Brown, and hear about her story of being biracial, both uh, Native American and African American. You can watch these films. Netflix uh, has The 13th and also Dear White People. I have some book recommendations. You can start with White Fragility. Then move on to I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings and So You Want to Talk About Race. 
If you're a parent, I encourage you to start educating your children. It is not enough to raise inclusive children. We must raise actively anti-racist kids. If I'm having conversations with my children at three and seven, they get it. Then I believe that we can get it too. The books that I read to them are The Day You Begin, Something Happened in Our Town, and Teach Your Dragon About Diversity along with giving them accurate information about incredible black leaders throughout our history. You can buy these books through Black-owned businesses, and I suggest that we start supporting more Black-owned businesses. There's an amazing Instagram account called We Buy Black. I highly suggest that everybody follows along. On my stories the other day, I posted that I wanted to help some of my supporters that are people of color who own, specifically Black, who own their own businesses. There were two that really stuck out to me. And then I also did an Instagram post where you can donate directly to people of color who've been affected. So the two shout outs that I have for you today are typical black tees on Instagram. They make really great t-shirts and things of that nature. And then one of my dear followers, Serene Hitchcock, and her Instagram handle is at Director of Ease, where she has free grounding meditations and a 55-page ebook on learning how to ground yourself. I know we can all benefit from her work, so I wanted to give her a shout out on here. This week's episode is a bonus episode. We haven't done this in a long time, and I plan on doing this once a month moving forward. It's interesting, Dr. Carter Stout was a really monumental figure in my recovery. He um, was a therapist at the treatment center that I went to nearly a decade ago. And I'm just so grateful that I got sober and that I'm on this path and that I'm continuously working on my consciousness, expanding and growing in that place. And he played a big role. So with that, here is the episode with Dr. Carter Stout. This is really cool because I haven't seen you in a decade. It's been a decade. 10 years. I just passed nine years sober Wow. And, well, technically in December, it would have been a decade, but Carter was a therapist at the Sober Recovery Center, which is where I went to go get sober. Yes. And you were my favorite therapist. I remember, and this is no slack to Shelly. I just, you know, you vibe with certain people more sure. than others. And I was yeah. like, I want Carter as my therapist. And Greg was like, you're not getting Carter as your <laughs> therapist. Right. And I was like, shit, but I want Carter. Um, But no, you introduced me to cognitive behavioral therapy, which changed my life. I mean, ultimately that ended up being, when I entered treatment, I was not ready to do the work. I had so much trauma. I think I was in survival mode where I was Mm. like still really checking out of my reality, not really ready to do that deep dive yet. But you gave me these small little snippets of, of hope 
of what sobriety could really look like. And I'm grateful for that because when I was ready to do the work, then I went and I found an amazing cognitive behavioral therapist who also did EMDR with me and it changed my life. That's fantastic. I remember, I remember you coming in and, uh, we had some other connections too, because I believe that your lawyer at the time that was helping you out with some of your uh, some of some of the My, things that you were going through legally was someone that I was friends with as well. Yeah, and who's an incredible, incredible man, and who was a mentor to me. And so I had a little bug in my ear that you were coming, and I just remember, of course, that time in your life was just so overwhelming. There was so much going on, but from the outset, I felt as though you were serious. I don't know if you were ready, but you were serious about this. You knew that you had to go on a different path in your life because the way things were going was just not working for you. And so when people come in that I can sense are very vulnerable and very fragile, but are there because they know they need to be there, that's always a a really positive thing. And you were attentive and very teachable and it was, uh, it's beautiful to see, you know, those initial stages. And then we go to a decade later and you're married now and you have children and you have this wonderful career and you're an author. And just, I'm really proud of you for all of those things. Well, thanks. I mean, you know, and it's interesting because very few of us survived and have made it this far. The few of us that are still left from that core group, I'm still good friends with, which is so amazing and, um, really close with Jason, Mm. um, and Jeremy, which is just nuts. And I still keep in contact with Charlotte too, which is really cool. And I think when I entered into treatment and I talk about the importance of community a lot, I wasn't necessarily ready to do the work and I would fight my therapist and cause chaos as many of Mm. us do in early recovery. But the community kept me there. Yeah. You know, the idea that like I could have friendships and kind of build my own family, because at the time I had a really crazy family who was not in recovery themselves. Mm -hmm. That really is the core of like what early recovery should be about is about building a community that you can trust enough to start sharing those secrets with. I agree. I totally agree. And you're right. Soba was a very special place in regards to that. It was not the strictest of treatment facilities that I've been to or that I've worked in, but it really had this family-oriented feeling to it. And everyone seemed to really get along and, and there was just this communal aspect. And when I got sober, which was in 2005, I had really reached a bottom in my own life and didn't have too much going on. And for me, the friendships and the people that I met in early recovery were my everything. They were my whole life. And I used to go to meetings and I would go to coffee and we would go find a cheap diner somewhere and hang out until two in the morning. And those friends were instrumental 
in my being able to be sober and just having some people in my life that I felt understood me. And many of those people are still my friends today. And we laugh about how silly we were and how damaged we were. And, and, you know, because when you're on the other side of it, as you know, for many years, it's, uh, it's interesting to look back and just think of who you were at that time. But, you know, that's what I say to the patients that I work with now is that really, if you're interested in going to a program, don't, don't worry so much about all of the aspects and the elements of the program at first. Don't get turned off by the spiritual aspects or just go there to try and find a few people. Uh, make a friend, make two friends, be able to call them on the phone and go spend some time with them. Because that's really the essence of recovery for me is people helping each other out. And that's what worked when I was getting sober. And I think many people get a little caught up in whether or not their belief system is aligned with the belief system of certain programs. And it's an easy way to, to say no. But I just would offer and encourage people just to go and meet some people. So you're not alone. So you don't have to go through it alone. Yeah. One of the things you talk about, I, I'm almost done. I'm on like the last 50 pages of your book. Let's see what page I'm on. I'm on 234. So we're almost, we're almost there Wow. Um, with Lost in Ghost Town is you talk a lot about relationships, about the relationships that you developed while you were using drugs in your street life and how profound they impacted your journey while you were on the streets and in active addiction. Yeah. Um, and I think for so many of us who are addicted, we're traumatized. Yeah. And we often don't have relationships with our family. And so we create these really toxic trauma bonds with other people who use like us or who maybe don't use like us. Um, you know, you, you talk about developing this relationship with Jamal, who was, you know, definitely at a different level and stage of his addiction and that kind of behavior than you were when you had initially met him Yeah, and how that really changed your life. And I think that, you know, and it's really sad. I had a patient this week who called me at 9am at our treatment center and, um, she refers to this person as her brother. She thinks of him as her brother. She was adopted. She had a really traumatic childhood and he yeah. overdosed. And so she left treatment mm. to go to him. Yeah. And it didn't matter how many times I said that the best way to help him is to help yourself and that you're so deserving of treatment. We develop these bonds with people and it's almost like people can just stay long enough to start developing bonds with other people around the path of recovery, their success rate just goes up so much faster. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Thank you so much for referencing the book. It came out just about six weeks ago. It's called Lost in Ghost Town. And the book really focuses on a time in my life where I was, of course, struggling and I was really hitting bottom. And tells the story of that time. And that time took place in Venice, California. And I grew up on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. and New York in a fairly affluent family. 
I always had everything that I needed on the outside, but I wasn't really receiving a lot of love and a lot of care from my parents. My, my father was a workaholic and my mother was an alcoholic. And so I really uh, felt as though I was not really looked on with high favor. And I internalized that message. And when I arrived in Venice at age 34, when I was really hitting bottom, interestingly enough, I found this family in Venice that were, that were mm-hmm. from you know, a very different background, different culture, different race. And they became this surrogate family for me, as you were talking about. And although we were involved in some nefarious activities, we were actually dealing drugs. I became really good friends with this uh, man named Flynn, and he became like a like a family member, like a like a brother to me. And oh yes, it was Flynn. Yes. Yeah, and it was Flynn. Right. I had marked this page on page fifteen where you talked about going to Beatrice's house. Right, Beatrice's house. Yeah. And so she was a huge part of your experience. Yeah, she was Flynn's grandmother, grandmother. and they had a house in Venice, and yes. they took me in. They offered me a place to stay. She would cook meals for me. I used to walk her to church. So mm-hmm. it was almost like I was getting this level of acceptance and this level of love from them that I never got from my own family. Yeah. And that's really the unique part of the story. Um, Yeah, you said in here, and I marked this because I so resonated with it. My belly was full and my heart had been touched by the kindness of an old woman. Beatrice had spotted my soul buried under layers of soot. I was lost and barely knew myself, but for a brief moment in her home, I remembered something vital that the smoke and the solitude that had taken away from me. I remembered that maybe I was good, no matter how terrible I felt inside. And I so relate to that, like at the center of us, something's good because I had these moments where people in, and this is where like, you know, I, I really am advocating for a whole shift in the way that we treat addicts and we do Mm -hmm. in quotes interventions because all it takes is somebody to come in with complete unconditional love and compassion to help you remind yourself that like at the core essence of who you are is like this perfect being who is so worthy and deserving of love. And I had Mm -hmm. those moments along the way. And I think that that's kind of what kept me going Yeah, is by, you know, even though they're not the most healthy relationships, even though, you know, they may not be totally normal or conventional, I had these figures in my life, even as a child, throughout all of the trauma I was going through. And you had talked about, I believe she was your nanny, right? That was that figure for you of somebody who did love you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that that really makes a huge difference. Those small moments of unconditional love. And just, it allows us to remember that at our core, like we are worthy. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you so much. Uh, I'm very much aligned with that philosophy. You know, when I was studying, I went back to school and for many years and ended up getting a PhD in psychology and becoming a psychologist. And the school that I went to was very focused on the work of Carl Jung. And Jung, uh, a lot of his writing is about the fact that we have a soul. And he was trying to uncover how to communicate with the soul psychologically and about going down into the unconscious. And, but that at our core, 
all of us have a soul and the soul is our most authentic, our most beautiful, our most loving, our most kind and generous part. It's the part that we come into the world with, but that over the years of our life and with all the experiences that we have and all of the fears that we collect and, and the trauma that we go through, that the soul gets covered up by our ego and by our humanity. And so trying to find a way back to an understanding that at our essence, we're divine and we have this beautiful part of us that is, is what I try to teach the people that I work with now, that, that at the center and at your core, you are beautiful and you are loving, even though oftentimes when we're using, of course, we go, are so far away from that that we forget. Um, but trying to find that place in each one of us is, is really important in recovery and to remember that and to develop tools and to develop uh, different exercises and rituals that each day bring you back to really remembering and connecting to that really beautiful, authentic soul that, that each one of us has. Yeah, so you developed this relationship with this family. And so even as you were hitting bottom, it was kind of like she, in a lot of ways, was like your angel. Yeah, there was like a spark, you know. There was, I got to the point a few times where I didn't know if I wanted to live anymore, you know. That's how dire my situation was. But there was just this tiny little spark in me that was still alive. And I believe that it was the soul and it kept me safe, you know, it kept me safe through all of it. And when I, even in the most self-destructive moments, which there were many, there was just this knowing in deep inside of me and Beatrice, who was this wonderful woman, she was a reminder of that. She treated me with respect and with kindness and took care of me. And it was just that uh, such a wonderful, wonderful reminder that I was good. Deep down, I was good. Yeah. We talk a lot. I feel like shame is the word of like 2019 and 2020. Everyone's talking about shame. Yeah. But I love Brene Brown's explanation about it. Like shame is crippling. It's the belief that I'm doing bad things. So that makes me a bad person. Mm -hmm. And guilt is the belief that I'm doing bad things, but I know inside that I'm actually a good person. And yeah. so it's important, you know, when we're talking about helping people in recovery to really look at the way that shame impacts people's lives mm -hmm. and how it's carried, you know, through childhood into adulthood, you know, and, and that story in there just kind of reminded me of the gift of just, we feel when people are loving us unconditionally, we move out of that shame and mm. into that guilt where we feel like, oh, like, why am I doing this? Like, I know I'm a good person and I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Mm. Yeah, that's a really, that's wonderful the way that she describes that. And I don't know how you are with it, but I, I assume that you've moved past a lot of the shame and a lot of the guilt in your life. And, and that was such an important part of 
my recovery. And it took a while. It took a few years of, of intense therapy for me because I was really angry. <laughs> I was angry. I, I blamed a lot of people for, for my demise. And of course, it was my mother and father were at the top of the list. And it wasn't until I really was able to forgive them. And then after I really worked a lot with forgiveness and understood how powerful that experience was, I started to be able to forgive myself. And this process of self-forgiveness, I think, is the essence of being able to remove shame and guilt from your life, is to say, I'm a human being. I'm not perfect. I made mistakes. I made bad choices. I lied to people. I was deceptive. And I did all of these things. But that's just a part of my story. That's just a part of who I am. And I don't act that way anymore. <laughs> um, I live a life that, um, that I feel is, is fairly balanced at this point, for the most part. And so I look back on those times now, and I have love in my heart for those times. And, and I celebrate those moments. And I say, wow, you know, those were moments in my life that I was really suffering. And I was trying to survive. Uh, in the best way that I possibly could without any tools um, because I didn't really have a lot of supervision or a lot of guidance from my, from my mom and dad. And so that was, I was just trying to survive. And so I've forgiven myself for those things and, and openly talk about them now with, with anyone really. And, and so for anyone listening, you know, those feelings of shame and those feelings of guilt Certainly, they can stay around for a while, but try to get to a point where you're really working with this concept of forgiveness and forgive those who in your life you feel have, have, have not been there for you, but also spend some time forgiving yourself. Yeah. One of the other parts of the book that I found that was kind of like a light bulb moment for me was when you were planning on running away with your brother and you were seven years old and you know you were kind of questioning him like well why are we running away like why you know is this a good idea should we really be doing this mm -hmm. and your brother said to you, well, they don't love us. Like mom and dad don't love us. And it was kind of this, like, from what I understand in the book, this earth shattering moment for you where you mm -hmm. were like, wait, what? They don't love us. Mm -hmm. And so my kind of biggest takeaway from that chapter was one, the way that, you know, and I love Dr. Gabor Mate and he talks about this a lot when we don't have steady adults in our family, how the children begin to raise each other mm -hmm. and how destructive that can really be. And then also that children really think in black and white and in absolutes. And we don't realize that something, and I remember several things that my parents said or that other friends had said to me in my childhood that, really left a profound, like a scar inside of me 
forever. And, you know, at the end, you, you, after you ran away and it was late at night, you said, you know, your brother was like, I didn't really mean that, but I still think that that impacts you forever because it's these moments where you all of a sudden, it's like a crack in the foundation and you go, wait, maybe mom's drinking means that she doesn't love me. And maybe dad being gone all the time means that he doesn't actually love or care Mm -hmm. about me. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's all of what you just said is so true. And there are sometimes there are statements in our lives from childhood or even adolescence or our teen years that we hold on to, that we uh, bury and they become a voice inside of us. They become part of our belief system. And that was one of them, certainly. And whether or not he was being serious or he was my brother, or he was just trying to get me to run away with him, that echoed in my psyche for, until I got sober, really, this idea that maybe I wasn't lovable and that, that my parents didn't love me even though there were certainly moments to the contrary. And I think, of course, sometimes they did say, I love you, but I didn't feel as though they really did. And he did bring me up in a lot of ways, my nanny and my older brother, and he was just a a year older and he was an amazing, amazing person. And and I dedicate the book to him. And, uh, but he was not the best influence on me because he was rebellious and he scoffed at authority and he was always getting into trouble. And he led me into these situations very willingly. You know, I was always following him, but we, you know, we started experimenting with drugs really early. And it was at a time, you know, we think you're, you're a mother, I'm a father, you have small children, I have small children. And I think to myself, um, how was it that my parents were unaware of all of these things that were happening and allowing them to happen. You know, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, smoking pot and running around and stealing liquor from the liquor cabinet. And how were they not aware? And, you know, I don't really know (laughs) how that's possible, but I think parenting styles were a lot looser back then. Yeah. And also my parents were narcissistic, right? They were involved in their own lives and They just felt like we were going to be okay, but the lack of supervision led to a lot of um, doing a lot of things that, you know, normal young boys shouldn't have gotten into. Yeah. I I mean, I know that that seems like it's part of your story as well. You were out in clubs and and hanging around with people at a fairly, you know, in your teen years, pretty early on and doing things and... I don't think that at least in my circles of people that that really would be the case today. I think we know a lot more about parenting and we're a lot more aware of substance abuse than we were back in, you know, I was growing up in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. I mean, I would hope so, but I, (laughs) (laughs) um, but as a treatment provider who works with parents yes. who are often just as sick as the yes the child you know it's definitely challenging and i and i think though that for for many years and this is just kind of a more recent revelation for me i had a lot of resentment that i wasn't willing to address until until recently like i said 
towards my mom and towards my dad, I had forgiven the fact for all of their shortcomings, you know, my dad's alcoholism, you know, getting into recovery allowed me to be just so much more empathetic towards him. My mom's history with sexual abuse and her inability to really be an adult, like Hmm. I understood it all, but I had this really deep resentment that I had to be the one in the family that had to break the generational trauma. I think that that's not really talked about enough, like the burden that you carry when Mm -hmm. you do break this cycle of trauma and the Mm -hmm. weight of it, Um, especially as a parent now, you know, had I not gotten sober, Tess probably wouldn't have gotten sober. My mom wouldn't have gotten into recovery. My dad wouldn't have stopped drinking all of this stuff you know, and I, and I felt the weight of it. And, and then I also felt the weight of like having to move forward, feeling this feeling of like, I have to be this perfect attached parent who Hmm. never yells at her kids and never all, all of the things. Right. And so I finally hit kind of a breaking point there, um, where I realized that, you know, this is my soul's journey. I came here to do this work. I'm not going to be presented with something that I can't handle. Do I need extra support in this? Yes. But it really helped me to reevaluate just the way that I was parenting. When I had my first daughter, I thought I needed to have this perfect, quiet home birth. She needed to breastfeed on demand and sleep in bed with us. And I had to baby wear her all the time and she couldn't cry for a single minute And I felt all of this like stress around her experience that I had to be like hyper vigilant around the the people around her because of my history with sexual abuse. I had all of this stuff in it and it took me several years to realize that that was really imbalanced and that it was actually just as harmful as my parents who... If you're being uh, too hyper vigilant and too afraid... Yes. You've got to find that, that balance. Balance. And with my second daughter, I really came into that and I really did figure that out. And Mm -hmm. now it's like, sure, I lose my temper. And then it's all about the repair. Like mommy just had a really rough moment and it had nothing to do with you. And I'm really sorry that I snapped. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then my daughter will say, it's okay, mommy. Like I snap sometimes too. And, Mm -hmm. and now because I've modeled that forgiveness and repair, Mm -hmm. she, when she has a major meltdown comes to me after and Mm -hmm. at six years old, I mean, talk about developing emotional intelligence and a six-year-old comes to me and goes, mommy, I'm really sorry. I was just feeling so angry. And all of a sudden my body got really hot and she has all of the words, you know? Mm -hmm. So rather than coddling her through every experience or feeling like she has to be cuddled, I'm modeling for her a way of life that's really balanced. I have a six-year-old daughter as well. And this morning she had a huge meltdown because of something that was complicated. She was trying to do an assignment for school and she couldn't do it. And it just was, got too much. And she started to scream and she went downstairs and continued in, in a full blown tantrum. And she had to get that out of her. It it was something, it was that energy, that hotness, that, you know, that explosive energy that she had to release. And so we just let her be down there for a while Mm -hmm. and let her know that we were available to her when she needed it. 
And she came back up, you know, about 10 minutes later. And she had expelled all of that anger out of her. And she was, she came up and she said, you know, I just, I was so confused and I was so frustrated and I'm sorry. And, and it was, as you said, this incredible level of emotional intelligence that I certainly didn't have when I was there. I did not. <laughs> I had I mean, none of that. <laughs> I was slamming doors and stomping upstairs and breaking things. And my yeah. parents were punishing me, you know, and, yeah. and there was this feud or they just weren't paying attention. But um, that's such an important part of, of parenting. And, and you talked also about breaking the, the trauma cycle, which is such, a, such an important thing to talk about because we inherit these things and some of them are genetic and, and some of them are, of course, environmental. These traumas that come from our grandparents and their parents and our parents and and. Uh, we have a lot of responsibility uh, when we're in recovery to try and repair ourselves uh, from our own brokenness and heal within ourselves and then try to uh, create an environment and set an example for the next generation that's different. And um, I had an, old, uh, an older brother, of course, Craig, who I talk a lot about in the book. and he was never able to get sober and his addictions were different than mine, but he, uh, two years ago, he, he passed away from, from cancer and it was a really devastating, incredibly sad time in my life because he was such an important figure for me. But part of my belief is that he had internalized so much trauma and so much grief and so much sadness and he was never really able to release it. And I feel like the, the psychological trauma turned into physical disease in his body. Yeah, well, we know that that's the case. And actually, I was talking this morning because, you know, sometimes I say some pretty controversial things on this podcast. And one of the things that I talk about is that, that in a lot of ways, I feel like we're living in a time where we're in a crisis. That's the worst that it's ever been. And people are like, well, what about the Holocaust? And what about slavery? And what about all those things? And yes, those were all really horrendous, horrible parts of our history, extremely traumatizing. I mean, the Holocaust, millions of people died. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the silent killers that are all interconnected that are happening right now on our world that we're not talking about. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about addiction without talking about obesity. You can't talk about mental health without talking about, you know, um, autoimmune disorders and MS. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's something like the top 10 leading causes of death are preventable. And it, it all mm-hmm. has to do with this stress and it's generational mm-hmm. stress mm-hmm. that has compiled in level after level, after level, after level. And now we're at this time where we we're seeing all of this as like separate illnesses, you know, like children being shot by each other in schools. And, you know, like I said, all of the addiction rates and mental health and mental illness rates are high. I mean, half mm-hmm. of the country identifies as lonely and anxious. I mean, this, mm-hmm. this is a huge 
problem. And, and to me, mm-hmm. what it comes down to is really the lack of community and the lack of care that we have for each other. The vast majority, in my opinion, of the illness that we're seeing today is a direct result of the collective unconsciousness and the generations of trauma and the way that we've been living, which is just completely not sustainable any longer. Unprocessed, undigested, unattended trauma. Mm-hmm. or hundreds of years, thousands yeah. of years, really, you know, not to get political, but the current administration, you can get you political, know, it, we get political. On okay, really capitalizes on fear, right? Yeah. And young Carl Jung, again, you talks a lot about the shadow, that mm-hmm. we have the soul and that we have the shadow and the shadow is all of the elements that we repress the things that we don't like about ourselves, our our hatred, our bigotry, our anger, our shame. And this current administration has allowed that stuff from the unconscious to become conscious. Mm -hmm. And they really brought it to the forefront and they're using it as a manipulation tool uh, to divide the country. And I have seen more of that in the past few years than I have in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. All of this pronounced hatred and this pronounced division and this anger that's just really palpable. You can feel it. And it, which is creating a lot of suffering. And it's there. It's there in the human unconscious, right? Mm-hmm. Collectively, it's there. And it's as though somebody took the cork out of the bottle now and allowed it to yeah. be in, in the consciousness. And it is, you're right. It is distressing and it needs to be treated with a lot of understanding and a lot of compassion and a lot of, as you said, community. And one of the things that's really challenging right now is that the sense of community has really been fractured by COVID-19. And although we can communicate via Zoom and we can communicate on our phones and and stay in touch certainly that way. There's the human experience, the intimate human experience has really been taken away. And that I feel is a really big part of what you're talking about. This this global collective healing that needs to happen is really something that needs to happen between human beings that are able to interact with one another, whether in groups, and, and that's not to say that each one of us doesn't have a responsibility to do our own healing, which I think is yeah. extremely important too. I think it does. I think it starts with us and then our families and then our communities and then yeah. our world. And I think a lot of my listeners are on this path and I have an online course now and just the people that are in the course who are really starting to do this work and really starting to mm-hmm. rise up in their consciousness and to do that deep dive into their shadow work, into their childhood trauma, yeah. looking at it, looking at the way that it affects their belief systems about the world and who they are in the world and affects their relationships and who they're attracting into their lives and doing mm-hmm. all this work. And it's just profound. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that is so important to take a look at too, is like, I think we're all feeling what you said, which is this lack of connection. Zoom is great. Skype is great. All of us is great. But my argument is that 
we've become such a world that relies on technology that we almost Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, the Instagram or the Snapchat or the whatever that this phone has really become the thing that's hijacked our relationships in a lot of ways. And now Mm -hmm. that we're forced to only have this, I think we're waking up and realizing that this is actually not enough and that maybe Mm -hmm. I need to actually start focusing my time on those more heart to heart, face to face connections as human beings. I love Johan Hari's book, lost connections. He talks a lot about the, you know, about how we as a society, just like Gabor Mate talks about thrived in hunter gatherer societies, mm-hmm. or we as a population thrived in our history, the best as hunter gatherer mm-hmm. societies. And that was because we all had this shared vision for each other and for the group. We cared yeah. about each other. We the collective well-being of the group. Cared about the collective well-being. Yeah. We need to get back to that. Shared point. responsibility as well. Yeah. And we yeah. have a shared responsibility for every single person who's out there suffering right now. Yeah. That's what I feel. I mean, people are like, yeah. oh, you want to be taxed more? Sure. Tax me more. If it means that people can have health insurance and that women can have maternity leave and that um, people don't have to work two and three jobs in order to just get by and that the vast majority of people um, aren't living to paycheck to paycheck and that people don't have to, you know, ration their insulin. I'm happy to do it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, I, I completely think what you're talking about is, is so relevant right now. You know, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but I grew up without cell phones and without computers, cell phones. I I think I got my first cell phone when I was 27 or 28 years old. I got my first cell phone when I was 11. Right. And it was big and clunky. But so my whole childhood and uh, young adulthood, adolescence and young adulthood were spent without technology. And it created the opportunity for for me and, and, and people that I knew to really spend time with each other and be present with each other. And some of my favorite memories are these lost weekends that we would share. We would jump in somebody's car and we would tell our parents that we were, you know, going to someone's lake house and we would disappear for a week. And we would have this collective experience with a group of friends and everyone was right there. There were no distractions. And because of that, we forged these really deep bonds of friendship and love for each other that still exists today. And when I was 21, I was in college and this was still pre-technology and pre-cell phones. Two of my friends and I decided to take a year off and travel around the world and on a budget. And we just put our backpacks on and we ended up in Nepal and we spent a few months in Nepal up in the Himalayas and, and going on a, on a trek and really immersing ourselves in the spirituality and culture of this incredible place. And I think of those times in my life uh, w- with such joy and because I feel like I, I had those incredible moments and, and because of that, those people are still really close to me today. But as a society, we've gone way uh, far away from having the ability to do those things because 
as you said, everyone is collected, uh, is connected to their phones and connected to their computers on a regular basis. And um, the, the younger generation is now learning technology at such, an, at such an early age. And many of them would rather be connected via their phones or, or Zoom or their computers than actually spend time with one another in person. Mm. Yeah. But um, we're you know, creating I, um, generations of consumers instead of creators. Yeah. And I practice this. I have instilled this practice in my home and not everyone follows it, but I do at a certain time when I get home from work, I will just put my phone on airplane and I'll put it in a drawer and not really check in with it or worry about it. And that allows me two or three hours to be with my wife and to be with my kids and to really be present with them and to not worry about it. If somebody really needs to get in touch with me, they can leave a message and I will check it once before I go to bed. But I just tune out from technology. And, you know, I offer that to, to people that I work with. I actually, in my office, I have an office in West LA. I had a rule where people had to power down their phones before they came in. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of resistance from people. <laughs> you know, you would think that they would be okay with not being connected for an hour, but it was really hard. And I lo- actually lost a few patients because of it, because they weren't, you know, and, um, but I said, turn it off, power it down. And for this hour, we're really going to be with each other. We're going to be present with each yeah. other. And um, I think that we need more of that in the world today. I really do. I don't know if you've seen this study, but I'll send it to you if you haven't. They showed that if there's a phone on the table when you're having dinner, you have less meaningful conversation of course. throughout the meal. So of course. it is really an important thing. Yeah. I'm so glad that we were able to dive in and talk a lot about the importance of connection. I think that your be- mm-hmm. your book, your be- your book speaks so much to that whether we're in active addiction, the importance of it or mm-hmm. whether we're in recovery or just in general. And I think it's definitely something important that we all individually should start to explore. Um your book is called Lost in Ghost Town. It's available now. I ordered my copy on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So everyone should do the same. Um, where you. can people find you? They can find me through my website. That's probably the best way. And it's www.carterstout.com. And that's C-A-R-D-E-R-S-T-O-U-T.com. Or you can just Google my name, Dr. Carter Stout. And I just want to do a little giveaway as well. Oh, cool. So the first five people that communicate with me via my website, I will send out a free copy of the book to you. Oh, awesome. That's so great. So all of this information, you guys, will be in the show notes on the podcast page and I will make sure to link your website on there. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Alexis. 
If you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor, head over to the podcast app and make sure to subscribe to us, rate us and leave a review. We have new episodes every Monday and you can follow along with us on Instagram at Recovering From Reality or visit our website at recoveringfromreality.com. 